Welcome to Life Talks with Stephen and Pat. Hello, good to have you with us as we get into Proverbs 17. Why don't you get yourself a coffee or a tea? And if it's in the evening, maybe a little bit of chamomile tea, but get yourself ready to indulge in the Word of God, hear the Word of God. And we know that as we speak it out, as we profess God's Word, there's healing, there's faith comes by hearing God's Word. So we have great expectations, Pam. We do. Totally submerge ourselves in God's Word. And some people are getting up at five, six with a strong cup of coffee, (laughs) getting into a a nice place in the chair, maybe a blankie, and sitting down. And we're all sitting in a living room together in heart and going over the Word of God. I just so happen to have a nice little green tea with me right now. Yes, you do. You already had your coffee. Some of you are college students and you're getting ready for school or it's after school, you're getting ready to go to bed. Um, Some of you are married couples that are getting up early before the kids get up. And some of you sit down every day with your kids, the whole family, and you go through this together. It's exciting to see how the Word of God really, really transforms the atmosphere and the climate of your home. You know, there's some things we can control and there's some things we can't, but do whatever you can to make this an enjoyable time. I always, whenever I can, when I'm into the Word of God, I like to have a cup of tea or a cup of coffee. A lot of times I'll put some nice soft music on in the background. Anything I can do to help me focus. If I'm in a hotel room, if I'm in an airport, where Wherever I am, there's always certain things that you can't control, but whatever I can, I try to make it an experience and just focus in on God's Word, hear what He has to say to me, and let the Holy Spirit minister to me. So you may be driving down the road, you may be alone, you may be with a car full of screaming kids having a blast and having fun, but you can exercise this environment to hear the voice of God. God can speak to you when you choose to focus and magnify His voice. Oh, that's so good. Isn't that good? So So we're in Proverbs 17, so everyone we know the routine. Let's join with Pam in prayer here and invite the Holy Spirit to help us. Yes. Father, I thank you that we have the mind of Christ and we are led by your Holy Spirit. I thank you, Father, that you're going to declare, disclose, and transmit via the Holy Spirit to us your will. So, yes, Father, we are, receive God. that. We understand it. We quickly do it. And everything we touch will succeed. Go forward all for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Pam, kick us off. Proverbs 17, verse 1. Better is a dry morsel with quietness than a house full of feasting and offered sacrifices with strife. (laughs) It's kind of fun. We were just talking about that. Better is a dry morsel with quietness than a house full of feasting with strife. Strife is ugly. Oh, it's almost like heavy, heavy smoke. You know, if a fire, you have to get out of the house because the fire can hurt your lungs, burn your lungs, and you know, it takes out the oxygen in the room. In a way, strife does the same through. It's like, you can hardly breathe. It seems to take all the oxygen out of the room. I would rather have some dry toast. Dry toast. Dry toast and tea with peace than to have a big fancy meal with strife and anxiousness and, you know, worried talk and gossip and all that kind of garbage. Just peace. The peace of God. Because again, the peace of God just brings healing to your inner person. So true. Verse two, a wise servant shall have rule over a son. Think about it this way. Somebody who owns a business A wise employee will end up being the boss over a son who causes shame and shall share in the inheritance among the brothers. And I've seen that happen. Somebody who's a wise assistant to company owner, somebody who really operates in God's wisdom, end up becoming so close in that family and becoming such a vital part of that family, they're even included in the will, last will and testament. That's true, because of the wisdom and seeking rightness and kindness. 
3. The refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tries the hearts. Pam, this scripture has really um, ministered to me, especially in these last years of my life, because think about it, a refining pot is for silver. So you got to heat the silver up to get the dross off of the top. The thing that makes silver is valuable, but the things that make it more valuable is to get rid of the impurities in it. And it's the same thing with gold. The refining pot is for silver. And then even more intense is the furnace for gold. You heat up gold so that it becomes liquid so you can remove the impurities and bring forth gold that's even finer. And then it says, but the Lord tries the the hearts. And you know, I don't believe that God, sometimes people have this idea of God going around backhanding people and you made a mistake, let me bring that hammer down on you. But there are circumstances in life. And James says this, my brother, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations. Well, we know this, God cannot be tempted with sin and neither does he tempt people, but he will allow us to be tried. There are trials and he will allow us to be tried so that he can see what's in our heart. And that's for our good so he can help us. That's what he said about Israel. He said he allowed them to go through the wilderness to see what was in their heart. Now, remember, it was only supposed to be like an 11-day journey. Right. They're the ones that turned it into 40 years yeah. <laughs> because of their unfaithfulness and their doubt in God. God just wanted to bring up what was in their heart and not so that he can say, oh, look at Stephen, you've got wickedness in your heart. Well, I know I've got wickedness in my heart. I was born in sin. Right. The heart of man is wicked and deceitful above anything. That's all of us. I believe God used uses the pressures of life, the fire of life, the trials, not to break us, but to bring the dross that's down in there, bring it to the surface. And that's what I realized. Friends, let me encourage you in this. Always take advantage of a good trial by letting the heat that's applied to your life bring the dross to the surface and then allow the Holy Spirit to take it off. And that's why when I'm in a crisis, I love going to the cross of Christ. It's a place of victory and it's a place of decision. And I lay down If it's anger I'm feeling, if it's some temptation that's coming up in me, I lay it down at the foot of the cross. It's the dross that I don't want. And in its place, I receive the joy and gladness Mm -hmm. that the King Savior provides me. The refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tries the hearts. And let me just add this, to improve and to purify your heart so that you can be a vessel for even finer things. Yeah, that's true. Yep. For an evildoer gives heed to wicked lips and a liar listens to a mischievous tongue. Isn't it interesting that a liar would actually value and pay attention to another tongue that's not doing right? Isn't that interesting? So an evildoer gives heed to wicked lips and a liar listens. So it's like, who are we going to listen to? You know, sometimes I think it really paints a picture who you pay attention to, who you really submit yourself to long time listening to has a lot to do with your character. That's because your repetition determines your persuasion. It has a lot to do with what you become, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really see that. A liar listens to a mischievous tongue. So it becomes, you know, again, it's part of the law of reciprocity, but it's also part of what you said, like the character of a person. When you become inclined toward, when you focus on lies, when you embrace lies yourself, then you become subject to that community, right? You get stuck in that mud yourself. So sad, but unfortunately, we see it all the time. Verse 5. Whoever mocks the poor reproaches his maker, and he who is glad at calamity shall not be held innocent or go unpunished. There's never a good time to mock. And in this case, the moment you mock the poor, it says we actually reproach our maker. God has his eye on the poor. He cares for the poor. 
He has a a tender heart and he's merciful toward the poor. And God doesn't want the poor to be poor any longer. But the way you bring people in poverty out, and I know this from my own family and my own experience, the way you come out of poverty is by having your heart converted to the truth. God broke the curse of poverty off my life by changing my thinking. Thank God for that. And God had mercy on me and loved me in my poverty. I could tell his affection and kindness was toward me. But the way he brought me out was by not giving me money, but by changing my thinking, giving me wisdom and understanding, changing the way I approach life, my attitude toward life, even my attitude toward people that were wealthy. God changed my thinking. And it says here, he who is glad of calamity shall not be held innocent. You know, some people think, well, that's just calamity of innocent, but you should never be glad at anybody's calamity, even the wicked. When calamity comes upon them, we should have still an awe and reverence toward God, knowing that when calamity comes on anyone. Remember, ultimately, those people were made in the image of God. That's right, for better things. And even if they gave themselves over to wickedness, it's not a pleasant thing and it's not a good thing when they perish. It's a sad thing to think of anybody going off into eternity without Jesus. That's a horrendous thing. Thank God for His goodness and His enduring mercy. Verse 6, children's children are the crown of old men, and the glory of children is their fathers. Now, isn't it interesting? We were talking about this in a previous chapter of Proverbs and talking about how that it's so critical to not segregate generations because God's original intention was for them to be interconnected, to receive blessing from each other, and to be a benefit for each other. God intended each generation, that's everybody, to be good ground to sow into and to also have good ground to sow in. It's the law of giving. We all need connection, but it's based on having good ground to give into, to sow into. It says here, children's children are the crown of old men. Grandchildren and great-grandchildren should be a reward to the older generation. Mm -hmm. It's not just talking to old men, but older women, you know, the golden Mm -hmm. generation. But then the glory of children is their fathers. And there's other places, like I told you in 1 Samuel, God pronounced a curse because of Eli's disrespect for God and a curse came on his whole family. The curse ultimately said that never would there be an old man in his family, and that ultimately meant there would never be strength in his family. This is the thing we need to realize in the church, that the strength moves from the top down, not from the bottom up. Yes, that's good. Strength always comes from the fathers, fathers, fathers. And when you think about it, everything is spiritual, so everything moves from the spiritual fathers down to the spiritual children. In the last book of the Old Testament, in the book of Malachi, in the very last chapter, Pam, the prophet says this, under the unction of the Holy Spirit, unless the hearts of the spiritual fathers are turned to the spiritual sons and the hearts of the spiritual sons to the spiritual fathers, a curse will come upon the land. And look at what's happening even in North America and around the world. There's a segregation between the generations so that the hearts of the um, what would be considered the spiritual fathers is really being turned away from the spiritual sons and the hearts of the spiritual children is really being turned away from with a disrespect toward the elderly. I think it's our responsibility if anybody is in leadership in any way, if you're a mom and dad, if you are over a certain organization, if you are in the ministry and have in leadership in any way, shape, or form, that it's important that we cultivate a atmosphere and a culture that makes time and margin for the different generations 
to get together, to bounce back and forth the goodness of God, back and forth the joy and the wisdom of God, stories of victory, understanding. It's very, very important because the glory of children are their fathers, and we're living in a fatherless society sometimes, even within Christian circles. No one's willing to be a spiritual father. That has nothing to do with your age. You could be 20 years old and still become, if you're fathered yourself, still become a spiritual father to someone, as long as you've been mentored. I'm really, we talk a lot about discipleship though, but it's very, very important that no matter what age we are, that we've been discipled ourselves. You know, I had a teenager come up to me, and this was in another state, actually another country, and uh, she asked me to pray for her because she said, you know, we're asked to go out all the time and go out. We're doing outreaches all the time, but she says, I don't feel like I've been discipled myself. So it is important that we have these spiritual fathers and mothers that nurture us and lead us. Then we can go out with what we've had. We don't have to be perfect, but we can be spiritual mothers and fathers to people, but not until we've been discipled or fathered or mothered. Well, if you see evidence evidence of the curse, you know, and we do often all around us. There's so many examples in the news of the curse being evidenced in our culture. But this is what the Lord said in the book of Malachi. He said, you know, unless you turn the hearts, unless you restore the relationship between the spiritual fathers and the spiritual children. You know, when I say spiritual fathers, I'm talking spiritual leaders, influencers, pastors, spiritual types of Abrahams and Sarahs. Unless you restore that relationship between spiritual mentors and the spiritual children and between the spiritual children, it says the curse will come upon the land Mm -hmm. and it'll burn like a hot fire. This is what's happening. When we talk about fatherlessness in this world, I experienced, even though I had a believing mom, I had an unbelieving dad not having those two parents that were in the home, just the pain that I experienced. How much more for other children who don't have that spiritual mentor sowing God's wisdom into their present reality, that spiritual mentorship coming down from not only parents, but having great-grandparents who are in the faith. Thank God for my parents who thought that training me in God's Word and God's principles was their calling and their responsibility. They're in heaven now, but I believe their obedience is still touching earth. Amen. Amen to that. Verse 7. Fine or arrogant speech does not benefit an empty-headed fool, much less do lying lips benefit a prince. It actually says befit. Oh, okay, befit. That's right, benefit. Well, (laughs) I guess befit comes from benefit. I think it's kind of the same thing, right? (laughs) Fine or arrogant speech does not befit an empty-headed fool, much less do lying lips befit a prince. I've seen a lot of people act like they know it all and well, let me tell you about this, let me tell you about this, and let me tell you about this. But then you realize that in their life, they're walking in such foolishness, disregarding true wisdom. And you kind of go, mm, something's not quite jiving here. Something's not quite going together. Right. Yeah. The word befit means to be proper or becoming to, you know, kind of like clothing that befits a, oh, okay. a certain occasion. Yeah. I so see. think about it. Finer arrogant speech fit, doesn't, right. it just doesn't fit. Mm-hmm. And you I'm kind an of empty-headed know fool. And sometimes you kind of think, what's wrong here? They're saying all the right things, but something really just doesn't ring true. It's kind of like, have you ever seen an actor or an actress in a movie where they play this heroic type figure with all this morality and they've got deep roots to their character and they just seem so, in the movie, they just seem so full of virtue and suddenly then you see them on a talk show and you find out how bubble-headed or empty-headed right. they are and you're like, what? I can that never just, watch them the same right, way. That just ruined the movie. <laughs> yeah, right. right. Or it's like if you actually have 
heard that person talk and they're in an interview and they're talking empty headed and arrogant and about how great it was to party and get loaded and all yeah, this kind right. of stuff and spending their money frivolously and they're in and out of relationships. And then all of a sudden that person's in a movie where they're supposed to be some kind of moral, virtuous mm-hmm. hero. Mm-hmm. It's like, eh, I'm mm, having a hard time buying into that. Yeah, right. <laughs> Just doesn't befit them. Right. Verse 8, a bribe is like a bright, precious stone that dazzles the eyes and affects the mind of him who gives it, as if by magic he prospers whichever way he turns. So in a way, and I've talked about this even with verbal bribery, a bribe, often we think of it as, Pam, look, here's a thousand dollars. Could you just kind of make this door open for me, you know, like a... I'm going to bribe you to put me ahead of the line, so Mm -hmm, to speak, you mm -hmm. know. We think of it like that, and a bribe can be like that. But a bribe can also be verbal bribery where you're telling people things, giving them compliments to try to extort favor out of them. And Mary, you're just, oh my goodness, you're just amazing. You're not like Jennifer. Mary, you're just, oh, this and that. Basically using verbal bribery to control Mary. You're trying to get access. You're trying to get her to change her standards and her decisions on something. And it says here that a bribe ends up even affecting the mind of the person giving it. It becomes very dangerous if the other person who is the object of the bribe, if they succumb to it and take the bribe or even take the verbal bribery, it affects them and pollutes their mind I think it would even more heighten their own insecurity. Yeah. You know, that's a good point because I feel like in the past there's been some times that people even saying good stuff to me, I took it at face value. I took it that they meant it, but sometimes I wasn't discerning. And even sometimes when I was discerning, something didn't ring true, like they really didn't mean it. They were saying it for alternative motives. I was so needy that I didn't really care. Just say it to me. I really don't even care if you mean it. It just feels so good to hear it. And I feel that that's not befitting being a princess in royalty and daughter of the Most High God or son of the Most High God. That's not royal. We shouldn't need flattery so much that we're not discerning if it's real or not. Even if it's not, we can smile, but we shouldn't be year after year stay with that much of a neediness. Now, I think we can ask God, please, I need someone to encourage me today. Lord, send someone sincere to really say something that they really mean. And of course, we need to do that to each other in the body of Christ. Our tongue is like healing. It's like life and rivers. It's supposed to, we're supposed to open our mouth and celebrate with each other's victories and, and encourage people honestly. But we should not be so needy of not being discerning when someone's trying to bribe us with their words and flatter us. Yeah, that's good. Because that's demeaning to a royalty. That's demeaning to a daughter of the Most High God in royalty. We don't need to do that. We should grow and say, you know what? I feel needy inside, but I know, Lord, please send me someone that's sincere today. I feel that. Crown me with your joy. Crown me with your favor right now. Make me feel valued and send a real person. What's the difference between a bribe and an actual gift? It really comes down to the motive, isn't it? Right. I mean, the difference between a bribe and a gift, the difference between a compliment and verbal bribery or extortion is just the motive of the heart. Because Luke 6, 38 says this, says, give and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. So giving, it's an act 
to God when it's done with the right motives. How are we being reward motivated? Because we should always be reward motivated. Are we looking to Father God who sees what we do in secret and rewards openly? Or am I given this gift because I'm trying to get power over Pam or get something out of Pam or trying to motivate to, to do something even that's a little bit shady for me? Verse 9. He who covers and forgives an offense seeks love. But he who repeats or harps on a matter separates even close friends. I think it's an act of love to cover for someone. An act of true love, godly love, covers. There's a word that says that love covers a multitude of sins. Jesus said to the disciples when they asked, how often should I forgive? They said, should we forgive seven times? And he said, I tell you, you should forgive seven times 70. That's a lot in a day. If your brother, you know, if your brother makes a mistake, you should forgive him that many times. But then what you went on to read here was, but he who repeats or harps on a matter separates even close friends. And I think sometimes when people keep repeating the same offense, at a certain point, you forgive somebody, but you ruin the trust between people, right? Like there's a trust between me and you as husband and wife. We have friends that we trust, and that's been built over time and with experience. And if people keep sinning in the same area, because we walk in love and because God is love, we forgive them. And we have a mandate from Jesus to forgive seven times, 70 times. But that doesn't mean we stay in that relationship. That means that there's a good chance the trust bridge is burned down. You may have a son who keeps banging up the car. Right. You may have a daughter who keeps burning the toast. Oh, yeah. I know where you're going here. Well, at a certain point, you obviously, you keep forgiving your daughter for burning the toast. You love her dearly, but at a certain point, she loses the privilege of operating the toaster. That's right. At a certain point, your son loses your trust for driving your car and no more. That's not going to happen anymore. You, You forgive them. Love covers the sin, but there's a separation. Sometimes people in our life, they burn the bridge so many times, they don't have access to relationship with you anymore. Do you forgive them completely? You forgive them, you let it go, you let it drop. But the relationship is not what it used to be. You're not going to hang out with them because they've burnt that trust bridge. And that's a biblical standard. Yeah, creating division among God's family is something he hates. And he classifies this as somebody the Apostle Paul says, like, stay away from these people and don't even wish them Godspeed. Right, Pam. And I think that scripture you're referring to is in 2 John verse 10. Of course, we're not talking about disqualifying people from relationship for burning the toast. That disqualifies you at a certain point from kitchen privileges, right? But we're talking about intentionally hurting people, sabotaging someone's name or character, creating division, or as it says in 2 John, betraying the doctrine of Christ. It's true. No soup for you. (laughs) Number 10, a reproof enters deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred lashes into a self-confident fool. Pam, I don't want to be that self-confident fool because I have no interest in a hundred lashes. No, me neither. I don't want to be a self-confident fool. (laughs) So I choose to listen to the voice of reproof. That's how God, the loving Father, that's His choice for how He wants to reprove us, with His Word. It really is, you know, and I think there's a word of wisdom in here for leaders and parents and people in authority. You should always be ready to listen to those that you have responsibility for with humility. If someone has a complaint or an issue, don't be quick to assume that it's all their fault. 
you are also under authority. The Bible says, and therefore you should be quick to hear and not assume you're always the one in the right. And if you instantly get extremely defensive and start attacking that person, that's not strong leadership. That's weak leadership. Right. So just take a deep breath. I feel the same way when somebody starts saying in a nice way stuff that I felt this when you did this. And I feel like getting very defensive, like, well, I'm trying my best. And, and you know, you feel like, well, I don't want to fail. You know, sometimes your first reaction in the natural is to get defensive and kind of, well, you did this, and what about this? And, you know, take a deep breath. When we do that, that's not strong leadership. I mean, that applies in everything, right? There was a time I remember in the studio, engineering for you were cutting a vocal, and it was like, Pam, that's just not working. Change it, do it like this. And it's like, at first, it's like, it's just quiet. I'm, I can't see you. It's quiet. It's like, I can tell you're like, I'm not liking what you're saying. Right. But I can tell you're digging deep into yeah, your godly to, womanness, and you're right. pulling up the understanding. <laughs> and as you pull up the understanding, then all of a sudden, you're like, yeah, okay. Yeah, I'm going to try that. You know, I think that's good. Took a few minutes for me to get over oh, the trust me being defensive, but I've I been nailed- there. Some, sometimes it takes me a few days, but you know, yeah. here's what it is. It says a reproof enters deeper into a person of understanding, and I think sometimes when we're in a conversation with somebody and reproof comes up or the opportunity to get reproof, do I understand what Pam's saying? You know, it could even be that I really disagree with what you're saying, but am I working at understanding what you're saying? Because as we read in an earlier proverb, a wise person is able to separate when it comes to knowledge, they're able to separate the chaff from the grain. Yeah. Sometimes people may expressing some knowledge to you. You have to be able to separate what's profitable out of it from what's unprofitable for you, but that's going to require understanding. And if we want to go forward from where you are right now, I don't care. You could be a rocket scientist listening to us. You could be somebody who's highly educated, who's very proficient in your expertise and your discipline, whatever it is. But if you want to go forward from where you are, you could be Albert Einstein and 10 times his intellect. But if you want to go forward from where you are right now in the second, there's going to have to be an embracing of reproof. Where are you going to get that reproof? Because God himself will use people to reprove you. That's part of even what we talked about earlier, the refining pot for silver, the furnace for gold. The Lord tries the hearts. Well, how does God try the hearts? A lot of times he'll use people. He'll even use adversarial people to try your heart. He'll even use authority, sometimes authority that isn't born again. He'll use your boss. He'll use certain circumstances. He'll use insecure people to see what's in your heart and to see what comes out. So you're going to have to process reproof to go forward into your success. Do you have understanding? Are you able to separate the chaff from the grain in that? Verse 11. An evil man seeks only rebellion. Therefore, a stern and pitiless messenger shall be sent against him. Can you say seed, time, and harvest, right? Harvest, yeah. To me, this person, this evil man, has, this evil woman has sown rebellion. And guess what the harvest is? A stern and pitiless messenger will be sent against him. him. Mm -hmm. Verse 12, let the brute ferocity of a bear robbed of her whelps meet a man rather than a self-confident fool in his folly when he is in a rage. Pam, I remember one time calling you because I was watching like, I think it was National Geographic or something like that. And there was this 
mama bear down by the river with her two little cubs, right? And they're having some salmon. And then off in the distance, the commentator says, "Uh uh-oh, this foreboding music comes on. (laughs) Here comes this male bear, this male grizzly. And then he starts talking and he says, male grizzlies, they sometimes can get an appetite for little baby cubs. If he could get a hold of those cubs, he would kill them. He would eat them. Oh, dear. And it was like, all of a sudden you're like, oh, I just, I I remember you, you were like, I'm looking away. I want to put my head down. I can't even see it because somehow you you get a concern and the narrator is saying that this male bear is twice the size of this yeah. mama bear, yeah, right? Yeah, I saw it. Well, when this mama bear, her ears go up and her eyes open and she gets up on her back paws and she sees that male bear coming up across the river. Oh my goodness. <laughs> she... You want to talk about a mama bear and her little whelps. This mama bear flew into a rage. And it's funny, the producers of the show did such a good job of kind of capturing her veracity, as this proverb says. The water was flying like it looked like 20 feet in the air. Her paws, they did it in slow motion. Her paws were coming down. She was roaring. And and it was like all of a sudden they looked at the male bear and the male bear was, what in the world? (laughs) What? What? What kind of hell and fury has been unleashed upon me? What's going on? Right? And the little cubs are looking like, what is going on with mama? She's lost it. And she is going after that male bear. And that male bear's kind of like, those little tasty snacks don't look so tasty anymore. Right. And the the narrator is saying, oh dear, what's going to happen? Because that male bear could easily kill her with one swipe of his paw. But man, that mama bear in slow motion, she was like wonder bear coming coming across the creek, the water flying in the air. And she went up to that male bear and he just like, Turn tail and run. Right. I mean, he was like, yep. I'm out of here. This is I'm that's no snack is worth this. Yeah, it's not worth this it. This is crazy. <laughs> and it says here, it would be better for us to meet that mama bear right. in her fury and uh-huh. her crazy protective nature Lord, for yeah. her little ones. It would be better to meet her than for us to run into a self-confident fool in the middle of his folly when he's in a rage. And that's how dangerous foolish people are. And that's why God has called us to not live a life that's indiscriminate and not be aware of who is wise and who is a fool. This is why as parents and as mentors, as pastors, we teach people the difference between a wise person and a foolish person. Right. And when people are in the heat of their foolishness, as this proverb says, a rage, it's next to impossible to talk them out of their mindset. You know, you can talk softly or try to reason with them and still nothing but their opinion or their way makes any sense to them. They're never wrong, not even 1% of the time. And so, you know, you're wasting your breath trying to help them. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. And we just read that a reproof enters into a man of understanding deeper and more soundly than a hundred lashes. I mean, the wounds and the bruises, there would be scars. You could bring a person to death's door with a hundred lashes. And it says that a reproof would enter deeper into a person of understanding than laying open a fool's back with that kind of physical... Self-confident fool. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to meet that mama bear on uh, on a creek shore bed. No more than I want to ever hang out with a fool. We read earlier proverb that it said, go from the presence of a foolish person when you perceive not in them the words of understanding, the words of knowledge. There's sometimes just no sense in talking at that moment. You might think, well, I'll talk them down out of the tree. No, no. When they're in that rage and there's no, no discernment at all of them wanting to know truth. 
Walk away. Do not text them or inbox them. Isn't that what you- <laughs> Do not email and go back and forth for three hours as they email back you. Do not engage in a Facebook or a Twitter war. In front of everybody. Like, <laughs> let it go yeah. until they get out of their tree. Yeah, there's no correcting them. No. Verse 13. Whoever rewards evil for good evil shall not depart from his house. And that's kind of what we're seeing here in modern culture and politics. We're beginning to see people call evil good and good evil. And when you reward evil, you bring a curse on your house. So if you want your house to stay curse-free, don't go around calling evil good. Don't call legislation that kills innocent life good. Don't call higher taxes and inflation acceptable or even good when it hurts hardworking people's ability to take care of their family. God works the truth, not a sliding morality of false balance. Sowing injustice and lawless choices will reap the whirlwind. Look around. The wrong side of seed time and harvest does have teeth. People are discovering that reality. Without God, that reality has very sharp teeth. When you vote for that stuff, my friend, even if your vote doesn't push your candidate over and they end up getting in office, if you're voting for what's evil, you bring a curse on your house. So if you want your house to stay curse-free, don't condone evil. That's exactly right. We've all heard stories in the media where people who believe evil are allowed to stay in the picture because of their wealth or influence or even how good looking they are. Or, you know, we can't reward people, even with children. If they're snotty to someone and arrogant and disrespectful, don't give them a reward. I mean, love them, but you cannot reward evil for good or evil will be in your house. You have to I think to you're kind of talking good. about sometimes when kids can be naughty, but they're so doggone cute. cute. Right, right. <laughs> People are, oh, I can't. What can I say? They're so cute as they're lying or as they're doing stuff like this. Well, you know, that's right, Pam. Even in your home, don't reward evil. I mean, call it Love what it them. is. Love them. Be kind and consistent. Right. And don't no matter how cute and adorable they are, even when they're being disobedient or lying, correct the lie because you don't want that lie to grow into an 18, 19, 21-year-old daughter who is being deceitful to you and it's only going to bring a curse on your home. Oh, that's going to save a lot of family heartache if you go to work on that right now. Yeah. Verse 14. The beginning of strife is as when water first trickles. So we were talking earlier about how awful and painful strife is. And so here we're getting an antidote how to take care of strife. The beginning of strife is as when water first trickles from a crack in a dam. Therefore, stop contention before it becomes worse and stop quarreling before it breaks out. My friend, don't let the dam break. No, no, hold it back. Right? That's true. Isn't that just good advice? Don't let contention become more than just a little drip coming out of the dam. Catch it now. Catch it early. Catch it at the beginning and put it to rest. Don't let strife take over your marriage. Don't let strife take over your home. Sometimes, you know, in marriage counseling, I've talked with couples, and when you get to the root of where it all started, Pam, I mean, now it's grown into this horrific offense. But when it all started, it was just this little dripping thing that was just left without somebody putting a guard on it, somebody fixing the small problem. Isn't that the way in our homes? I remember we had a leak one time, a small leak under our sink. We 
didn't know about it. If only we had known about it, we could have saved ourselves many, many dollars and much, much work. But because we didn't know about it, that dripping kept compounding. And the next thing you know, it overflowed down into our finished basement. It filled up the water on top. We had stains all over the ceiling. There was so much damage. And then it turned into so much repair work. Grab that contention right at the drip stage. Oh, yes. The sooner, the better. And fix it. Fix the problem when it's small and keep it small. Don't exactly. let it compound into, well, I remember back in, you know, 1942, you said this. Right. <laughs> Verse 15, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both an abomination exceedingly disgusting, and hateful to the Lord. Pam, isn't it funny how we're seeing quite a few things that are exceedingly offensive and disgusting to God? It's funny, when you read through Proverbs, we really realize that God is love and He's compassionate and He's merciful, He's kind-hearted, but there's stuff that's just exceedingly disgusting and hateful to God. Don't call what's wicked righteous and don't call what's righteous wicked. Right, that's so true. And we see this in the world today, played out on the screens across the world of life in the media, in our schools, in our businesses, it seems like there's a increase of calling evil good and good evil. And it's very sinister because it preys on the innocent minds, the minds that really want to know truth. That's why we, as sons and daughters of the Most High God, believers in Jesus Christ, we need to take a deep breath and make sure of our words, our decisions, and the expressions that represent us. You know, you spoke earlier of our vote. Well, we vote with our dollars and subscriptions. You know, people can look up to you and I, people that are listening. You can be in positions of authority. You need to watch what you say. I've heard people just flippantly introduce somebody in a situation, be it a speaker or in a business or something, and just go on and on and on without really knowing them, their character, even what they're going to say. And once they get up and they say things that are wrong, it's hard to pull back. Be really wise what we say, how you endure somebody, what you call good and biblical who you know God calls evil because of the fruit in their life. That's good. And the terms you use, you know, it's funny as you were talking about that, it made me think of a pastor friend of mine had a marriage counseling session with this couple that were in deep crisis and apparently he had committed adultery against their marriage. And so when they were sitting talking, he kept referring to the incident as a love affair. And he kept saying, well, you know, I, you know, because of this pressure at work or whatever, and I had this love affair with my secretary and the pastor's like, oh, hold on up, Jim. Quit calling it a love affair. You committed adultery. Use the appropriate term. You sinned against your wife and against God. Call it what it is. That's right. You cannot fix a love affair, but you can heal a transgression with God's grace. You were in sin. Exactly. You know, when a person fails a course at school, they don't say, I was in a state of intellectual pause. (laughs) No, I didn't fail the course. That's what I did. Period. (laughs) Let's quit watering it down here. It's not a love affair. Right. But he kept referring to it when they were talking. It's ethereal, sweet sweet thing. So whenever the pastor would ask him, okay, well, you know, tell me about this. And he would say, well, the love affair went on for six months. No, no, the adultery. 
Right. The sin against the God went on for, yeah, the <laughs> lust, the coveting of another man's wife right. went on for six months. And he wants to call evil good. Right. But see, in his mind, he had got in a habit. The enemy had seduced him. You know, lies are almost always the foundation of all other sin because the enemy is the father of all lies. So to get us self-deceived is to set us up so that we can even murder and call it justice. Oh, yeah. To abort little babies, unborn babies, is not women's rights, but we like to call it that. Oh, dear. Because it makes us feel so squeaky clean, and it makes us feel like we're advocating for a precious woman. And we call that good, even though God hates the shedding of innocent blood. And the deception is that advocating for a baby is harming a woman, but that's a lie. Hurting the baby at any stage of life is hurting the woman because every woman is a precious life with more than just a physical body. She's got a mind, a soul, a spirit. You can remove the baby from her womb, but you can never remove the imprint on her soul. You and I have friends that have had this done and they needed God to heal their hearts from the grief and the shame. We want to help people. We want people to be able to be blessed by God's lavish promises for life, joy, and fulfillment. But trying to redefine sin as being a right and being some kind of a privilege and being some kind of respect for the female gender, it's like you're literally contradicting the word of God. It's an abomination to his love for humanity, not because God isn't passionately about the woman. Look, over history, Christianity holds the number one record for being the liberator and the rights giver to women. That's so true. You know, in North America, the female gender enjoys freedoms and rights that women in other countries just don't have. We have those rights as foundational because of Christian values, because of Jesus. (laughs) The female gender enjoys first-class rights and privileges that we should have because of God's word and his ethics, his morality. Because of God. That's right. Because God said for men not to disrespect women. God's word says for men to treat women with great awe and respect. Jesus came to make us equal. (laughs) Jesus came to give us life and abundant life. And in him, we are his sons and daughters with equal benefits, equal favor, equal blessings. I read a book on women who had gone through an abortion, and there was story after story after story of precious women who had been in situations that were very challenging. Some of them were 16, some of them were older, but I remember one that comes to my mind was a 16-year-old who uh, got pregnant by her boyfriend, and she went in to have the procedure. And she said, now, what is it? Like, is it a baby yet? Or, you know, I think she was about four and a half months or something of four months. And um, they told her, no, it was a blob. It's just a, it's not human. It's just a blob. And so she went ahead with the abortion. Well, three or four years later, she went to college and she was sitting in class and she was taking biology or something. Well, they were showing, some class that she was at was showing pictures of every month of the baby inside the womb. It got to four and a half months and she saw what she had aborted was a precious baby, human being, life. And she went screaming out of the room and said, they didn't tell me. They didn't tell me. She had to go into deep counseling. I hope that there was people that came alongside her, good people to help her through the healing, to make her realize there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. But we have to realize that's what happens. People get hurt when you call good evil and evil good. That's so good, Pam. And as you know, we have friends, close friends, that have had abortions, and they're wonderful daughters of the Most High God. And someday they're going to get to laugh 
laugh and play and run That's with their right. precious children oh, yeah. in eternity. And it's such a beautiful picture. And, you know, I want to just say this. If you're a doctor, a physician, a nurse, and you've been involved in, in abortions, and maybe you've been a physician who's actually done abortions, let me tell you something. The mercy of God is everlasting. Yes. God oh, loves you. you, sir. God loves you, ma'am. He loves you. He loves you with an undying love, and he sent his son, Jesus, to forgive us all. I needed forgiveness. You need forgiveness. We needed the washing and the cleansing, the purging of the blood of Jesus to set us free. We all have sinned. Whether we've told a lie or aborted a baby, we've all sinned, and God can forgive us and make us free through the blood of Jesus. And you can get on the excellent track of life for life. Get off the crazy train and stop calling evil good and good evil. Instead, call things the way God sees them. Right. Get on the other side of this verse and begin calling wickedness, wickedness, and calling righteousness, righteousness. Just doing that is a quantum leap into a life of happiness, joy, and peace. Makes your life clear and happy. Absolutely. Verse 16, of what use is money in the hand of a self-confident fool to buy skillful and godly wisdom? When he has no understanding or a heart for it. Pam, I've often thought of this proverb because with money, with wealth, you can lay a hold of wisdom. You can get even philosophers and teachers and wise people to come in your life. You can attract wise people at your conference and get them to speak wisdom. But it says here, what's the profit? What good is it? Because without understanding, you can't open it up. In my book, 31 Ways to Your Best Days, all based on the Proverbs, I've got a little cartoon in there where there's a a guy who's starving and he's got all these cans of food, but he doesn't have a can opener. And I feel like that's kind of the picture. The food is the wisdom that we all desperately need. But the can opener is understanding. And unless you can open this guy on a desert island marooned, unless he can open the cans of food, he's going to die of starvation. And here's the picture we have. A fool has no understanding. So no matter how many words of wisdom and ideas of wisdom they get, they can't truly open it up and enjoy the contents of it. Yeah, that's true. 17. A friend loves at all times and is born as is a brother for adversity. I think that this really depicts what a a true friend is and what a true sibling, brother and sister are. Someone that's consistent, faithful through the good and the bad times. There's nothing like adversity in your life to find out who people are in your life. That's true. When the times are tough, that's the real proving ground to see what kind of relationship you have. Do your friends desert you or is there some gold in those friendships that rises to the surface and they stand up and embrace you and they're there for you? We've had people like that in hard times who've actually stepped right up into our life and been more of an influence and more of a blessing and more of a support. That's a true friend, right? That is. Plus, a true friend won't just tell you what you want to hear, but need to hear. If you're just labeling people friends for their selective agreement of your opinion, that's not a true friend. That's definitely not a God assignment. Verse 18, a man void of good sense or a woman void of good sense gives a pledge and becomes security for another in the presence of his neighbor. So there's even a witness. God is really against what the word calls suretyship, which is to co-sign. It says, don't do that. If you've got something you want to give to somebody, just give it to them. You know, if somebody needs some land and they're asking you to co-sign, if you've got the land and you want to give it to them, just give them the land if that's your heart's desire, but don't co-sign for them. 
But can you co-sign for a family member, a son or daughter, or someone close to you who's proven to be trustworthy? Wouldn't that still be okay? Here's a principle from God. The borrower is servant to the lender. So let's say if you've got a friend who's made a decision that they're going to borrow, they're going to borrow from bank ABC. Biblically, the principle is that your friend is going to become servant to bank ABC. The moment you co-sign, you become also servant to bank ABC because you're a co-signer. Right. I get it. So ultimately, that would keep you from being a further blessing to others if the whole thing went bad or default. I think what it is is, and you know, this has been the thing that's kind of stirred up my thinking when I was in deep poverty and when I was in debt and, you know, even in my thinking, just had a poverty mindset. I constantly thought like a borrower and God had to arrest my heart, rewrite it and made me realize that I don't want to be a borrower, but I want to be a lender. I want to be a giver. Yes, that's the life God's called all of us to. And so he changed my way of thinking. This is why I say God is against suretyship. He's against co-signing because God's against you being a servant to a lender. And even more, God wants you to not get the loan, but to get ownership of the thing that you're taking the loan out for. I'm not saying that loans are bad. I'm just saying co-signing ruins a lot of friendships and family get-togethers. Think about it. Just maybe God has a better plan for you. So could you say that if you as a parent or a sibling, if you're willing to say, you know in your heart, okay, then I'm going to be subject to the bank myself. Am I willing to do that? I think that's the thing. And to be realistic, like, oh, they would always pay. Well, just realize you are subject to the bank now yourself. And is that something you're okay with? Right. I think God wants to break us out of the North American mentality for most people is to be mortgage minded. If they're going to have a house, it's set in stone. You have to have a mortgage. I think God wants to break us out of that thinking and believe and realize that under the blessing of God, his will is that you don't have to be a servant to the lender, but that you can lend to many and borrow from none. That's the word of God. That was the blessing in Deuteronomy 28, that you would borrow from none, but you would lend to many, that you would end up being the blesser of people, and that you would not charge outrageous interest rates, but that you would be a blesser to many people, to be a conduit of his blessing. So I think eliminating this particular worldly option as a means of getting the desired thing pushes us deeper into faith as our exclusive mindset for obtaining and for apprehending something God's way not the banking way or the borrowing way or the stuck-in-debt way. So instead of a cosigner mindset, we develop a giver mindset. Yes, even when you don't have much. God started me out on the giving mindset instead of the borrowing mindset when I had next to nothing, no car, no savings. I only had debt. We've experienced that in our life where God has empowered us to be able to give substantial gifts to ministries and to people because God changed our thinking from being borrowers to being blessers. Yay, and that's my favorite. If you're going to be a bee, be a blesser right. and not a borrower, yes. right? And so instead of promoting debt, we need excellent financial stewards to teach the other person how to give. And instead of being a borrower, let God teach them how to be in faith for a thing instead of pursuing debt. That's teaching someone to fish, right? Instead of how to go in debt for a fish sandwich. Verse 19. He who loves strife and is quarrelsome loves transgression and involves himself in guilt. But he who raises high his gateway and is boastful and arrogant invites destruction. (laughs) He read that so cheerfully. (laughs) Let me read it right. No, no, I like it. He who loves strife. (laughs) (laughs) You just read it so cheerfully. And he who raises high his gateway and is boastful and arrogant, he invites destruction. (laughs) 
<laughs> so there you go, kids. And on your way out the door, remember homework is to not be destroyed. <laughs> but you know, it's funny to say this. It says, he who loves strife and is quarrelsome. I know some people that think about it this, they even really enjoy movies that are all about strife. Yeah. And quar- they like TV yeah. shows where people are quarreling. Yeah. Oh, reality TV and so-and-so is going to call so-and-so this name and they're going right. to, she hauled off and slapped it and they just indulge in it. Oh, they like that. They so like it, yeah. And it's like, that's just gross. Or some people just like to, like it's in them. They just, if there's not a quarrel, they want to make they something. They want to make something yeah. up. Uh-huh. They want to get people yeah. agitated. Right. Again, my friend, if that's you, don't get condemned. We're not pointing our finger in any way and calling you out. But here's what we can do is let's call it out, that love for strife that love for quarreling and transgression. And let's just do like Pam and I constantly do. We bring it to the cross. Just pray it like this. Father, I bring this love for strife and quarrels, making trouble and fighting. And I bring any of my boasting, any of my arrogance to the foot of the cross because I don't want destruction in my life. I don't want guilt in my life. I bring all that junk to the cross. I renounce it. Yes. I resign from it. Mm -hmm. And Father, in its place, I receive a love for peace, a love for people, (laughs) and a love for solution. Solutions, answers. God, you would fill my mouth with answers, solutions to quarrels and bring peace, removing the chaos and bringing that nothing lacking, nothing missing, nothing broken peace of Almighty God in Jesus' name. And we call it done. Amen. All done. There you go. Just like that. Verse 20. He who has a wayward and a crooked mind finds no good. And he who has a willful and a contrary tongue will fall into calamity. That's a God just gave us a law there. Got it. That person with the willful and the contrary tongue, God says they will fall into calamity. Here's what I do with that. I come back to Romans 12, verse 2. Don't be conformed to this world, Stephen. Pam, don't be conformed to this world. I won't do it. Meaning don't take the shape, the form of this world, but be transformed. How? Proving what is that good and acceptable, perfect will of God. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He said right here, he who has a wayward and a crooked mind finds no good. Well, I had a wayward and a crooked mind completely. And then I got in Proverbs. I got in the book, in the word of God, the unfailing, unlimited promises of God. And then, Pam, God began to shape my mind and my thinking as I repented from my stupid thinking. Yeah. He began to shape my thinking like his thinking. Mm-hmm. Just mm-hmm. like we were talking about, I used to embrace poverty, almost be proud about poverty. Well, this is just who we are. You know, we may be poor, but we sure are proud. That kind of yeah, right. That kind of stupid thinking, right? Yeah, the cowboy that, movies. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, we don't have nothing and we draw identity from that. That's just who we are. We don't take no of, charity. Exactly. And so that's the way I was too. People would try to give me things and there was such a mistrust from things that happened to me as a boy. I would be told by an authority figure that something was to be given to me, but then I'd find out I had to pay for that gift 10 times what it was worth. It developed a mistrust in me for gifts and for those who supposedly gave them. I realized that, you know, a little trinket would cost me 10, 20 times what the trinket was worth. And so then when people would try to give me something, I knew I was going to lose my independence by the gift and the gift would end up mastering me, right? So I ended up having this poverty mentality toward charity and gifts because of the world I was living in, not realizing that the gift is not as important as the giver. Who's giving you the gift? 
That's very important because that really has a lot to do with the motive behind the gift. That's right. And God brought people into your life that helped rewrite not only your trust, but your understanding of who you could trust. And true givers, people who are righteous people, they give as unto the Lord. They give and they let it go. No strings attached. It's meant to be a blessing from God. And they are the hand extended of God Almighty. Verse 21, he who becomes the parent of a self-confident fool does it to his sorrow, and the father of an empty-headed fool has no joy in him. doesn't seem like fools bring a lot of um, joy to, joy to their, their parents or their family, do they? Yeah, I know. All the more reason that as a spiritual son, I want to pursue wisdom because I want to be a blessing to my spiritual family. And at the same time, too, I think as a parent, this is kind of an admonition to not tolerate anything that would line up with foolishness in their children, even at a young age. And when I say that, I'm not saying that kids can't play and have fun. Obviously, they should. Children should be allowed to be children. But we talked earlier about don't kind of wink at and smile at the smallness of sin just because it may look cute in the packaging. Rebellion is rebellion. Even if it's at three years old and it may look cute, deal with rebellion as rebellion and help train up. The words is train up your children in the way they should go. Help them get out of lying. When I was a little boy, because of a fear of my dad, I learned to lie. You know, nobody taught me how to lie. It just came natural according to my nature. I automatically told a mistruth to avoid consequences, but it's wrong. And I needed that corrected. I needed to realize that lies bring about a really tragic harvest. And that's what children need to learn. They need to learn to love the truth and hate lies and and all forms of deception. And not be self-confident, but be confident in the Lord who God made them to be. Let me say that last line again. I needed to learn to love the truth and hate what is false. And you know, as children and grownups, we need to be never self-confident. We need to be confident in In who we are in Christ. Yeah, that's good. Because along with that confidence comes kindness, comes long-suffering, comes patience, comes mercy, comes honor and respect. When we're self-confident, none of those characteristics dwell within that. Yeah, that's good. Verse 22, a happy Happy heart is good medicine. Ooh. Yay. I like that. A happy heart is good medicine and a cheerful mind works healing. That's why, Pam, a lot of times I confess I have a happy heart in Jesus' name and I've got a cheerful mind. You know why? Because it works healing even in my body. And not only that, again, I want it to be something that I can bless others with. To walk into a hospital room with a sad heart and a miserable mind. I got a feeling you're not going to be much of an agent of healing to that person laying in the hospital bed. So a happy heart is good medicine and a cheerful mind works healing. I think for the person that holds it, but I think for the person also that becomes an agent of it. Oh yeah, there's both sides of the coin here. We can be an agent of happiness and cheerfulness, but listen to this, but a broken spirit dries up the bones. A broken spirit sucks all the moisture out of your bones. It makes a broken spirit promotes osteoporosis, a drying of the marrow of your bone. Remember, the marrow of your bone is where your blood, it's kind of like your blood factory in your body. And we know that the life is in the blood. So you want to have good, healthy, strong marrow. Yeah, exactly. So I got a merry heart. You know, many times in the middle of the night, almost every night, 
If I wake up or roll over, I use that just 30 seconds or or something just to say, my mind is joyful. My body is full of joy. My heart is happy in Jesus. Yeah, that's good. Remember, I I speak to my mind and command it to receive the joy of God and the body to receive the goodness of God. That's good, Pam. Remember, we read in Proverbs 15, 13, that by the sorrow of heart, the spirit is broken. By the sorrow of heart, the spirit is broken. You may say, well, something terrible has happened in my life and I have such deep sorrow and deep heart pain. Well, again, let's bring that to the cross. Pam and I know what it's like to have family and loved ones go to be with Jesus. People leave this world, brokenness and relationships. We know what it's like to have tragic things happen in our life. But you bring your sorrow, you bring your sighing to the foot of the cross. We know from the word in Isaiah 51, 11, it says that the redeemed of the Lord shall return. You got to change locations when you've got all that sorrow in your heart. You return and it says you come with joyful shouting. It doesn't even, you may not even feel the joyfulness, but we come with joyful shouting to Zion, which is the habitation of Christ, the place where Christ reigns, the city of our God. It says everlasting joy will be on our heads. Oh, I can't even imagine that. But you can. If you return to Christ, we come to the cross, we come to the place of Christ, and everlasting joy will be on our heads. And listen, we obtain gladness and joy. See, we got to obtain it. How do we obtain it? Christ paid the price for it, but we go back to the place of decision where the transfer happened. It's at the cross, and we obtain gladness and joy. And look at this, sorrow and sighing flee away. So right now, you go to the cross and you say, God, I'm emptying out. Here's all my sorrow and sighing. Here it all is. It's all the grief and the mourning and the pain. I'm pouring it out at the foot of the cross. That's right, lay it down. At the place of your victory, I make this decision and I give up all my sorrow and pain in this situation. It's too much for me to bear. And in its place, Lord, I receive from you the oil of joy, the gladness. You crown me, according to Isaiah 61, with your glory and honor. And you put on a garment of praise on me in Jesus' name. Thank you, I receive it. We receive it now. Man, I bet you you feel better already just praying that. I know I do. And command, all during the day, command your mind and your body to receive that joy. That's good. Yeah. yeah. And, command and life your mind coming up in our bones now. Yep. To throw off the sorrow. 23. A wicked man receives a bribe out of the bosom pocket to pervert the ways of justice. There we go with the bribe again. We had first, we were talking about the bribe, how the, the guy is almost mystified and he's seduced by the magic of a bribe, the one who right, gives right. it. He's the one that's just kind of caught in a trance about There's this bribe he, this. because he's believing a lie, right? He's, yeah. he's getting used to bribing and he's almost thinking it has mystical, magical right. powers. It'll get bribe. me everything I want. Well, now we get on the other side of it and now here's the person who receives the bribe and it says, when you receive a bribe, you're the wicked person. I don't want to be a wicked person. And that's why I find even when you're a leader and you're in a place of influence, sometimes people don't realize it. They do it unintentionally. They try to bribe you in certain things. They try to get their way. They try to get access to certain things. People may call it buttering up. They may call it this or that. But it really comes down to bribery. And like I said, whether it's with something or verbal bribes, it really comes down to the heart. Giving is a beautiful, wonderful thing. But the enemy wants to sabotage giving because he doesn't want you to have a good harvest in your life. Yeah, it's good. So he turns giving into bribing. Well, what's the difference, Stephen? Bribing is when you give with the motive to control somebody, to exercise almost a witchcraft type of control. You're trying to get access. You're trying to control them mentally and emotionally so that you can get what you want. Giving is when you take something that God has given you, you give it with a heart that's pure 
with a sense of reward-mindedness toward God Almighty. I'm giving this to you, Pam, because I'm believing God to reward me. And it's just really important to know the wicked person receives the bribe out of that other person's, see, it says out of the bosom, really out of the motives of the heart to pervert the ways of of justice. justice. And that's ultimately the end of a bribe, is to pervert the ways of justice. And there's different ways to be just. Right is called right. Wrong is called wrong. Somebody who's faithful is rewarded for it. Someone who's not faithful is not rewarded. But sometimes we do things to be nice or balanced or what's the word? Um, Equitable. You know, leaders have been known to give their own special brand of justice uh, because of how it suits them personally or how it profits them. To be motivated by a bribe, which may just be your own personal version of a payoff, depriving the right person so you can reward the wrong person, is sowing wicked seeds of injustice for your future. A different kind of justice, but it's just to say when people do things God's way, that should be acknowledged. When people do things anti-God's way, that should be acknowledged. Right. So it doesn't matter when it comes to bribing, even if you're a politician and you're giving benefits to the poor because you're trying to extort a vote out of them. That's bribery. And God calls it unjust. Do you want to help them? Do you really want them to grow? These are ways that you can check even your giving. Am I bribing somebody or am I giving out of a pure heart of wanting the goodness of God to be manifested in other people's lives? Right. Are you trying to support justice or are you trying to pervert the ways Mm, of justice? It really comes down to motive. And thank God we have the Holy Spirit living on the inside of us. And in ourselves, Romans 3 says, no man does good in himself. No woman does good in herself. We need Christ living in us to give us the right motives. I need the Spirit of Christ alive in me, giving me the motives to pursue righteousness and justice, because in ourselves, none of us pursues righteousness and justice. Oh, isn't that the truth? Verse 24, a man of understanding sets skillful and godly wisdom before his face. Well, that's what our friends are doing right now. Right. By putting this podcast in their ears putting it in front of them, they're putting a focus on understanding. And it says here, a man, a woman of understanding sets skillful and godly wisdom before her face, but the eyes of a self-confident fool are on the ends of the earth. We can be on the ends of the earth just going on the internet like right now, looking at all kinds of foolishness, craziness, stuff that doesn't feed our spirit woman, spirit man. Five hours go by and we're not any more wise or understanding than we were before. I remember this pastor, we were ministering at this church and um, he was taking us back to the church and he stopped on the side of the road and there was this particular field and he said, I want to show you something. And there was a sheep and they were in this one field, and then there was a fence, and then the fence looked over the highway, and over the highway was a field. He said, watch this one sheep every single day. This field is so lush. The shepherds are so good in this place. They take care of their sheep, and it's so lush, and they can eat, and it's wonderful. But this one sheep will every single day go over to the fence and forlornly look through the fence over to that other field, and he gets all the other sheep. Yeah, to all follow the other him. sheep. He would influence all the yes. other ones, and they'd all follow him. And they would just forlornly look over there, like, "Wow, if we could only be in that field." And the pastor told us that field is thorny, and it There's has nothing, nothing for good them to, to eat. eat over there. No, which goes to show you the grass is not always greener, greener on the other side. On the other side of the fence. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's good. <laughs> 
Verse 25, a self-confident and foolish person is a grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. It just goes to show you, you know, we've talked about the family effect in this chapter, talking about Malachi turning the hearts of the fathers, spiritual parents to the sons and daughters, and the, the hearts of the sons and daughters to their spiritual parents. And, you know, it just goes to show you that the people that we mentor, even the people that would be considered spiritual sons and daughters can be a grief to us and a bitterness to us if they fall into foolishness. And that's why it's so important at even just a young age, at the beginning when somebody gives their heart to Jesus, at that beginning stage that we get them hooked on to wisdom. Yes, absolutely. Because they end up affecting their parents, their biological parents. They affect their spiritual parents. There's a word that says in the Bible that no man lives to themselves and no man dies to themselves. That's so true. We affect people for either good or bad. When we think wise, we end up being a blessing to people. When we think foolish thoughts, we end up hurting the people and especially the people closest to us. Verse 26, also to punish or find the righteous, that's not good nor to smite the noble for their uprightness. See, God doesn't like that. Mm -mm. God does not like when you fine or punish the righteous, that's not a good thing. When you smite the noble because they're upright, when you find the noble just because they're upright out of spite for them, Mm -hmm. Or because, as Pam was saying earlier, maybe you've got your own brand of equity that suits your personal agenda better. And And you better know what the rightness of God is. That's what we're learning, getting it to the Word of God. His way of thinking and doing things, His rightness, His uprightness, and what is noble. So if you don't know what is noble or honorable, if you don't know what is righteous and unrighteous, then how can you make that quality How can you decision? make that? Yeah, yeah. that's good. If Pam. you're just listening to other people and you're very, very, you have a statement, I say it a lot, who you listen to determines what you believe. God's hand is on the righteous and his hand is on the upright. So don't mess with them. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't, don't bring lawsuits against God's righteous. Don't come against God's people. Don't mess with the upright. Don't mess with his widows. Don't yep. mess with God's orphans. Don't do that because God's eye is toward them and he deals out hard consequences to those who sow such unkindness, such unmerciful seeds, who try to come against the righteous, the upright, the the righteous widow, the orphans Mm -hmm. um, that are considered under God's care. Don't mess with them. God sees that. Verse 27. He who has knowledge spares his words, and a man of understanding has a cool spirit. Do you want to be cool? It's going to be cool. <laughs> get yourself all the understanding you can That's get. right. Right? Isn't that good? Uh-huh. He who has knowledge spares his words, and a man of understanding has a cool spirit. That doesn't come natural for me. I think sometimes when I have to explain something, I feel like I got to use a ton of words. But I've been in situations, even life and death situations with people, and the Holy Spirit has been right there helping me refine my words and try to say as little as possible. Right. I'm a work in process, Definitely. But he who has knowledge spares his words. But it's an opportunity to measure ourselves, like the Bible says, to judge ourselves. And I like what you say so often, and that is to back up against the wall and get a real measurement from God's straight edge. To see, are we a person of wisdom and understanding able to hear? Or are we just talking and talking, hoping to satisfy our desire to be heard and express an opinion? Then we need to say, you know, Lord, I need to be a person of wisdom and understanding more. Help me. So that means, Pam, when we do these Proverbs again in 30 years, they'll be only like probably 10 minutes long. That's right, because (laughs) we will have gone forward. (laughs) That's awesome. Verse 28, 
even a fool when he holds his peace is considered wise. Now, that doesn't mean he is wise, right. but it says even a fool when he holds his peace is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is esteemed a man of understanding. <laughs> you know, it's so true. Can you just imagine how many publicists who would have been so happy if the entertainer or the public figure they represent would have just kept their mouth shut? <laughs> so if you're a fool and you're trying to come off as a wise person and as a understanding person, you can fake the funk and and here's how you do it. Just keep your mouth oh, shut. Yeah, that's right. Keep your mouth shut. And people are like, you know what? That guy just seems really wise, doesn't he? But that makes me think of staff meetings or corporate meetings, even organized things like prayer meetings. You know, there's a built-in idea that you need to participate. But I've seen where the same people dominate the airspace and always have something to say without consideration for anybody else who maybe aren't as outgoing or aren't as needy for attention. That's probably another opportunity to be quiet and err on the side of not being a fool or an airspace hog. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus even said in Matthew 6 to pray secretly. Now, public prayer is good, but balance it with two parts. Time to be quiet and sit down there, Mr. Chatty. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, we've seen some of that, haven't we? <laughs> oh, but thank God he hears us in the secret place, right where you're at. He wants to answer you. Yes, he does. Well, let's pray the word, Pam. I love reading the word. I love digesting it. And then I love praying. it. So as you're listening, pray along with us. Yes. In Jesus' name. Father, we thank you that the refining pot's for silver and the furnace is for gold, but God, you helped try our heart to bring out the dross so that we might become gold and silver for the fire. In fact, your word says that we were bought with a price far above gold and silver. We're so precious to you. Your sons and daughters are the apple of your eye. They're precious to you. And God, because you love us so much, you're unwilling to leave us That's right. the way you found us. Praise God. You're cleaning us up. You're constantly making us a vessel for the finer so that we can carry more happiness so that we can, as we talked about earlier, be agents that carry healing. That means we have a happy heart and we've got cheerful minds. And that means we've got to get rid of anything in our minds and in our heart that interferes with that happiness. So Father, we just submit ourselves to you again here at the cross and we receive the life, the joy, the gladness. We lay down our sorrows and Lord, we pick up the joy of the cross, (laughs) the joy that Jesus has completely victoriously won at the cross. Father, thank you for that. We are dedicated to setting wisdom before our face and guarding our eyes from any of the foolishness around the world. Lord, we do not want to call right wrong and wrong right. We don't want to be guilty of that, but we need your precious Holy Spirit and your word, Lord, to discern, to distinguish between what's right and as Pam was talking about, to know right from wrong. So Lord, we dedicate ourselves to being givers that give like you do, Father out of a heart of love with a motive, knowing that you are the rewarder. You are the blesser. So Father, you give seed to the sower and multiply the seed sown. We give not to control people, but we give so that we might find the seed getting into the good ground and God Almighty raining on it and bringing us a harvest. Yes, Lord. Father, you're good. You're merciful. 
Father, you so loved us that you gave your only begotten Son that we might have eternal life and be called sons and daughters of the Most High God. We love you. We praise you. We speak blessing on everyone listening right now in every situation and every circumstance. We speak a revelation of your wisdom coming up in their heart. And Father, we give you praise. Thank you. We shout your praise and we love you. We love you, Lord. All to the glory of God in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Remember to go online and get connected with the many, many free encouragements at livingroomchurch.org. Or you can get the Living Room Church app for free in the App Store. It's the purple one. And it's so easy. You'll be able to have the TV show, uh, One Minute Power Talks, delivered to you every day, along with a lot of VIP treatment in so many different ways. So. VIP treatment. Ooh. <laughs> and reserve seating and all Does live that come events, with like a stuff foot like massage that. or anything? Well, we could try. That. <laughs> we can think of that. Remember to tell your friends and family to listen to the podcast, Life Talks Podcast, so that their life can be enriched too. Also, go into the website and tell other people about this. We love coming into your home, into your car, being with you when you're running, wherever you're at, just to let you know you're not alone. You're very loved. There is somebody that really cares about you. And more than anything, that's Father God. But we do too. So thank you very much. And Steve and I just want you to know that you are are born to win. Thanks for listening to Stephen and Pam Marshall. To receive more information or more teaching, go to www.stephenandpam.com. Stephen and Pam Ministries is a 501c3 charitable organization and your gift helps us to take this message to 1,000 communities worldwide. 